Okay. Uh, the, the reading question was about the Lyman series. That's the emission of ultraviolet light from hydrogen to transitions of electrons from the to the n equals one state from higher levels. Uh, questions from students. I'm sure we can detect when an atom is absorbing energy, and especially when it's emitting energy to drop down, but can we ever see what an atom looks like while it's in the process of, of absorbing energy? So, what does it mean to see an atom? So, it would mean that uh, you detect some light that comes from the atom. So, the photon that it's emitting is light. So, detecting that photon is as much as you could imagine seeing, unless you had some other probe that could probe the electron, but if it's got a wavelength small enough to probe the size of the atom, it's going to have enough energy to blow that electron out of there. So it's another uh, quantum, uh, that's how quantum mechanics is. All you get to see is what comes out. Griffith said the greatest triumph from Bohr's theory was to account for R and put it in terms of fundamental constant. Does this mean that Bohr derived the formula for R? When did he do this work? Yes, he did. Uh, it was 1913, I believe. Uh, I don't know why V of rho equals C naught in equation 479. Because when you plug into the recursion formula for those values of N and L, it truncates after one term, and the first term is a constant. So. It's a constant. I've been exposed to this idea of causing an electron to be excited to higher energy level before and in earlier course, but I'm confused about it. For instance, suppose the photon strikes an atom in a stationary state. Suppose the energy level of the photon is slightly higher than the amount required for a transition. Would the electron absorb the exact, exact amount of energy it needed for the transition and then let the rest pass through? No. No, it would uh, suppose, oh, also I suppose a more important question that I've heard asked is where do the photons that get released during transition to low energy come from? Are they created and destroyed spontaneously? Yes. The photons are still EM waves and then before the photon is emitted, where is the momentum and energy stored? So the energy is in the electron in the atom. It's got a binding energy. That's where the energy is stored in the atom. So there's a Coulomb potential. There's a kinetic term. And then you create, if you go down to a lower state, you create a photon and emit it. EM waves are just lots and lots of photons, usually. But you can have a single photon, and then it doesn't look like a wave. It looks like a photon. Uh, they seem to refer to transitions in plural, Lyman series, Bomber series. Is this because we can transition in different, different ways from energy levels? It's because the series are all the ones going to a particular final level. So there's many levels that can go to one level. That's why it's plural. How does the collision with another atom make an electron transition to another stationary state? So what happens when two atoms collide? Do the electrons touch each other? Probably not. They probably exchange photons. Why do they Because they're electrically charged. So they can interact with photons. So they have some Coulomb repen repulsion between yeah, them, right? So that's also photon exchange, as we'll find out oh. later on. So really, 
electrons interact by exchanging photons in various ways. And so collision is just another way of putting some photons in. Uh, does one of these series exist for every atom? Yes, every type of atom has its own spectrum. How can it possibly be that we solve for the wave functions of the simplest atoms in all of the universe that we know of, and they are so complicated? Well, are they so complicated? <laughs> I mean, think, think about it. If the classical picture of atoms was correct, then in addition, for each orbit, there's some initial conditions. So every atom would depend on the initial conditions of the electron when it was set up. So the orbits of planets are much more complicated than the orbits of electrons. Because every is an infinite number of initial conditions, so there's an infinite number of orbits. But here we have these nice discrete quantized orbits. And every atom with the same with the electron in the same orbital is exactly the same. It's much simpler. I think. Uh, I hope he doesn't really mean that we can only solve hydrogen. So what he means is that you can only solve hydrogen exactly. It's the only, well, you solve the harmonic oscillator exactly. But uh, do you ever really solve things exactly? You always make approximations. And as we'll see, we've already made a bunch of approximations to the hydrogen atom that we didn't even bother or realize that we were making at the time. So as you learn more about the hydrogen atom, you find there's extra corrections you can put in, and then your exact solution is only approximate. But that's always ball rolling down an inclined plane, you only solved that approximately too. Yeah? Okay, so I can expect the hydrogen atom, the wave function from the hydrogen atom is, is ugly, even even both is ugly. Well, it makes pretty but, pictures. But that's the only thing you can solve. It's, it, it's one of the few problems that you can solve exactly. But we can we're gonna solve more complicated things, but approximately. But you always make approximations in order to solve things, so yeah. I had a lot of trouble with this in software, and I know a lot of people also did, but we didn't get a chance to come to you and talk about office hours because we went from Friday to Monday. Right. And so I was just wondering if we could have like a few more hours after the class. I don't, I don't know. Just, I so how, how does it work in E&M when you... <laughs> So the reason we went to this twice a week system was the students said E&M was much better because the homework was due twice a week. Maybe like Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday have a couple days. Wednesday, Wednesday, Friday. Wednesday, Friday. Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. Wednesday, Friday. I think the trouble is if it's due on Monday, it's kind of due over the weekend and it's hard to... Okay, so does Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday work? Yeah. <laughs> So how, what works, works then? Yeah. I don't know. I like it better. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I prefer to do higher frequencies. Okay. How about it? If, if we we could make it Tuesday, but then you have to hand it to the grader. We can't put it in the box. You could put it in the grader's mailbox. Well, this one was already, people worked hard to get it in on time, so let's say starting next week, we'll do them Tuesday, Friday. Is that okay? 
Let's say 10 o'clock on Tuesday. So let's, we'll have a vote. How many people would prefer to switch to Tuesday, Friday? Okay, new. How's new? Greater has to have time to grade them too. Okay, how many people want Tuesday, Friday, Tuesday at noon? And how many people want to stay with Monday, Friday? Okay, I guess we're switching. The tyranny of the majority. Okay, so last time we were calculating the expectation value of an electron in the orbital with the value bell or the maximum value bell? Anyone remember? I think it was C. Maximum. So our wave function was r to the n minus 1 times an exponential. We're calculating the expectation value. So the expectation value we see inside the integral, there's the operator r that we're taking the expectation value of. The wave function squared, modulus squared, times r squared dr. The r squared's already absorbed into the r to the 2n. And we've already normalized the wave function, so we know what this normalization constant is. And so we just have to apply this formula for the integral again. So in this case, uh, b is still 2 over na, and now m is 2n plus 1. plug in what A is up here. Uh, there's a 1 over 2n factorial. So that's going to cancel part of that 2n plus 1 factorial. Let's just do it. So that's plugging in A. This is what we got from the integral. So the 2n factorial is going to cancel part of this 2n plus 1 factorial. So we'll be left with a 2n plus 1. Off the bottom. Uh, we have na to the 2n plus 1 and 1 over na to the 2n plus 2. So we're left with an na. And there's a 2 to the n plus 1 on top and a 2 to the 2n plus 2 on the bottom. So that leaves 1 and 2 left over. So that's n squared plus n over 2 times a to Bohr radius. So the expectation values grow like n squared. So they get 
as you go up and in, the orbitals get bigger. What if we wanted to calculate expectation values of p squared? What would be different? We could put p squared inside acting on one of the wave functions. So we could have wave function star p squared, which is a derivative squared, but since we're in three dimensions, it's d by dx squared plus d by dx. It's d by dx squared plus d by dy squared plus d by dz squared, and we're working in spherical coordinates, so it might get a little messy. Or we could use a trick. We know that h is the Hamiltonian is p squared over twice the mass plus the potential. So we know that p squared is twice the mass times h minus v. And we know the expectation values of h, they're just the energy levels. So instead we could evaluate energy levels and subtract the expectation values of the potential. Potential is just a 1 over r, so it's just one more of these integrals. So you could do it in a few lines if you use that trick, or you could do it in two pages if you worked out all the derivatives. Okay, so let's do some spectroscopy. Well, not really. called spectroscopic notation. You guys already know spectroscopic notation, right? So we know what's really going on is that the or orbital angular momentum is quantized in these integers. And uh, before people knew what was really going on, they invented this naming scheme with letters. So they called L equals 0 S, and they called L equals 1 P, D, F, G, H. And, uh, I don't know why anyone still cares about this, but people still talk about SPD waves. Just, just be old-fashioned. And if supposedly on entrance on the GRE, they like to ask questions about spectroscopic notation. So that's the only reason I'm going to say this. Yeah. So you say SPD and F associated with uh, right orbitals in chemistry? Yeah. Okay, so what happens if we, you guys read about transitions between energy levels. If we have a transition where we emit a photon or absorb a photon, the energy of that photon is given by the difference of the energy levels. So there's some initial energy, we subtract the final energy, that gives us the energy of the photon. And we have this clever formula for the energy levels. It involves 1 over n squared. So there's 1 over n initial squared minus 1 over nf squared. And uh, we also know that the energy of a photon can be written as h times nu, the frequency. And frequency is speed over wavelength. So we can get a formula for the wave, one over the wavelength.
13.6 EV was actually alpha squared times the mass times the speed of light squared over 2. And this is the empirical formula that Bomber came up with. So people had measured the these spectral lines and apparently he was a school teacher and he liked numerology and he realized he could <coughs> fit all these spectral lines with this <coughs> formula with inverse squares. So he didn't understand anything about physics as far as I know, but he liked playing with formulas. And now he's famous. So this coefficient is called the Rydberg constant. And we can write it in another way. If I write it like that, you can see that it's alpha over the Bohr radius times 4 pi. So it's about 10 to the 7 inverse meters. And then from that, you can get all these energy levels. So we have our ground state, excited state, more excited states. We can go down to the lowest guy from any of these excited states. We can go down to the first excited state from any of these guys. We can go down to the third one and get the picture. So this one is called Lyman. This one's called Bomber after our numerology friend. This one's called Passion. Lyman is <coughs> UV, Bomber is visible, Passion is infrared. And that makes sense because Lyman is, has the biggest gap, so that means the biggest energy release, so the highest frequency. Then this gap is smaller. These gaps are even smaller. So the smallest gap is lowest energy, longest wavelength. And I'm just going to show you some pictures. Let's see if my computer wakes up. So here's the coolant potential. Proton is sitting at the center, and we're falling down in this well, but we're quantum mechanical, so we get these energy levels. The lowest energy level is down here. Here's zero energy, and then above that we have the continuum of scattering states. And so what we see, and what we've seen from our wave functions, is the lowest energy level corresponds to the smallest, most compressed wave function. So it's sitting deeper down in the potential. Potential is confining it to a smaller region. So it sort of makes sense from your classical intuition. The next energy level is higher up. That means it can go further out in the potential. So it's more energy. The more energy you get, the further you can go. When you get up to zero energy here, that means you can go all the way to infinity. So if you have more energy than that, you can escape the potential. 
can just be in a scattering state, come in from infinity and go out again. So here's uh, the same kind of picture. Here's the coolant potential. Here's the energy levels again. And on top of the energy level are corresponding wave functions. So this is a radial wave function. It's R, and it's a four radius. The, the ground state radial wave function is peaked, and it's peaked inside this region where you'd sort of expect it classically. And then it has a little bit of a tail hanging out inside because it's quantum mechanics. And you do that in quantum mechanics. Then in the first excited state, n equals 2, we have two types of uh, radial wave functions because L can be 0 or 1. And then up in the 3, that's getting hard to see. So now there's three possible values of L, 0, 1, 2. And each one has different numbers of nodes, depending on the value of L. So now you know the complete wave functions you can picture in your head, right? Because you take a product of this radial wave function with the YLMs, and then you can see in your mind where the probability electron should be. Or, if you're like me, you have to make a picture. So here is the simulation of the ground state of hydrogen. So measuring the position of the electron a thousand times, roughly, you get a cloud distribution and it's centered around the proton. And it trails off. That one's easy. Here's uh, two zero zero. So you can see that this guy has a, a, a node in its radial wave function. There's a dip in the probability around here. Can everyone see that? It's like a view from the z-axis. Pardon me? Is this a view from the z-axis, though? Um, I think the z-axis is this way, but it's spherically symmetric, so it doesn't matter. In this one. Now. Here's L equals 1, N equals 0. So the z-axis is going down this way. Everyone memorize that? Yeah. You have to draw this on the final exam. <laughs> yeah. I like this one. Get a donut. Right. L equals one. N equals one. Right now, there's a hole in the donut down there. So here's three zero zero. So you can see that there's two nodes in the radial wave function, and then it's spherically symmetric. these two lobes, but then the radial wave function has a node.
see on my screen. This is like a donut inside a donut. some distant quasar has a spectrum of uh, radiation, probably some UV radiation. So it might look like this. So this is actually the spectrum of a quasar nearby, which of the 0.1, not too far away. Here's another one at redshift 3.6, pretty far away. There's something funny going on is all these slices on one side of this guy. What's happening is if we, this guy is emitting, it has some hydrogen in it, so some of the time it's emitting in the Lyman series. And if there was a cloud of hydrogen between us and them, us and the quasar, it could get reabsorbed by that cloud. But as the light is traveling from the quasar, the universe is expanding. That means that uh, the photons from that quasar are getting redshifted. So what was originally the guy that was the Lyman alpha gets shifted to a lower frequency. But stuff, so lower frequency, longer wavelength. So things that um, were a different frequency after the universe expands a bit can then be reabsorbed by hydrogen cloud between us. Now what's happening here is that there are many, many hydrogen clouds along the way. Part of the Lyman alpha gets absorbed by that hydrogen, then it, the light that's not absorbed keeps going, gets redshifted, and then gets absorbed in a different place, and gets redshifted again. So they call this the Lyman alpha forest. Yeah? And alpha means N, N equals 2 to N equals 1, did Alpha is two to one, yes. It's the primary, the first one in the series. So from looking at these spectra of quasars, you can reconstruct the distribution of hydrogen clouds in the universe. If you look in every direction. You have a lot of time. But uh, quantum mechanics is useful for even, even for astronomers and cosmologists. Is that picture the hydrogen distribution? Or? This is some, yeah, this is some imaginary picture of what it looked like. So it looks, well, it's clustered around the dark matter. So you'd expect that it has a filamentary structure like dark matter. 
Okay. What about helium? <coughs> so, I lied. Here's another problem we could solve exactly. So, for helium, we have two protons and two neutrons in the nucleus. And then if we ion, we'd normally have two electrons. But if I ionized it, kicked out one of the electrons, I could have ionized helium with just one electron. And then if I solved hydrogen, I can solve this one too. So the potential for hydrogen was this horrible thing, which is the same as this beautiful thing, alpha over R. For helium, the only thing that's going to be different if I've ionized it is that the charge in the nucleus is twice as big. So I just have to write 2e there. So 2e is the charge of the proton, e is the charge of the electron. <coughs> so in the beautiful notation, I get minus 2 alpha over r times some h-bar c's. And now I can do it for the next guy. I think lithium is next. Let's just do it for z. If I have z protons, then the potential is minus h-bar c, z, alpha. And since we tried to write all our formulas for the answers in terms of alpha, then we know how things go. So the Bohr radius was h-bar over alpha mc. So for z protons in the nucleus, we'll have h-bar over z alpha mc. Because all we changed in the Hamiltonian was we multiplied alpha by z. Nothing else changed. So the energy levels for hydrogen went like alpha squared, mc squared, over 2n squared. For z protons, <coughs> we'll get z squared alpha squared. So we just solved 114, 118 ionized atoms. Exactly. Hydrogen-like atoms. Yes. Hydrogen-like in that there's only one electron. So they're highly ionized in general. Yeah? Uh, which potential? I have e squared here. I have e squared here. Alpha has e squared in it. Alpha has got Alpha goes like e squared. So what we'd really like to do is solve those atoms with all their electrons put in. So for helium, that would mean we'd have two electrons. So we'd have an extra term in the Hamiltonian. There'd be a repulsion between the two electrons. So we'll get to that approximately. We need a little more technology first. Because first, we to understand angular momentum in much more detail than we do.
So angular momentum is R cross P classically. So Lx is Y PZ minus ZPY. Ly is ZPX minus XPZ. And LZ is XPY minus YPX. And we know in quantum mechanics, momentum is represented by an operator, h bar over i times the derivative. And the same for y and z. So let's calculate a commutator, because that's always lots of scintillating fun. But we'll learn something if we do it right. So if I calculate the commutator of Lx and Ly, of ypz minus zpy, <coughs> zpx minus xpz, and you can already see something bad is going to happen. Well, not bad, but it's not going to be your classical answer because there's a z over here and a pz over there. They're not going to commute. So let's, we can separate this out by taking YPZ with ZPX. And then YPZ with XPZ. And ZPY with ZPX. ZPY XPZ. So let's see. PY commutes with Z, right? PX commutes with Z. So this one vanishes. PY commutes with X. Oh, there's a PZ there. Doesn't work. Here, PZ commutes with X and with Y, so that one goes. So we just need these two guys, the PZs and the Z. And we know that X, PX commutator is IH bar. And so if it's RIPJ commutator, then it's a delta IJ times IH bar. So in this first one, the things that aren't commuting are the PZ and the Z. Everything else commutes with those. So we could bring out Y and PX. And this last one, again, it's the Z and PZ that are giving us the problem. So we can take out PYX. So PZZ is minus IH bar. And ZPZ is IH bar. So if we write that uh, like this, XPY minus YPX times IH bar, then it looks like IH bar LZ. So the commutator 
of LX and LY is LZ. And then you can check in your spare time commutator of LY with LZ is IH bar LX commutator of LZ with LX is IH bar LY. So we have a vector whose com components don't commute with each other. So that means you can't measure all the components at the same time. It's a very interesting vector. It's also useful to know about the angular momentum squared. And we know that's the sum of the squares of the components. So if we calculate the commutator of L squared with LX, that's the sum of three terms. There's an LX squared LX plus an LY squared LX and an LZ squared LX. So LX squared commutes with LX because LX equals LX. What about this guy? So there's a trick for writing these guys. If you expand it out, you can see that you could write this as LY times the commutator of LY with LX plus the commutator of LY LX times LY. And then same thing for the LZ term. And we did it that way because we know these commutators of the individual components. So the commutator of LZ LX, or sorry, LY LX, that's the minus of the one we worked out. So that's minus IH bar LZ. And then minus i h bar lz ly lz with lx said was i h bar ly What does that look like to you guys? Looks like zero from where I'm standing. Because we have an LY LZ and an LY LZ but opposite sign. And we have an LZ LY, LZ LY with opposite signs. So L squared commutes with LX. And similarly, you can check that it commutes with LY and with LZ. So we can measure the square of the vector and a component. We can't measure all the components.
So the summary of that is L squared commutes with the vector L. So usually what we want to do is find simultaneous eigenstates. We want to find all the things that we can measure simultaneously without messing up the other quantum numbers. So that's also called, I don't think Griffiths calls it this, but uh, in your graduate course they'll probably call it a complete set of commuting observables. Tongue twister. So we're going to look at L squared acting on an eigenstate. I'll have some eigenvalue lambda and LZ. Acting on an eigenstate, it will have an eigenvalue mu. Now, you, you can check that if you tried to add one more to this, then it wouldn't work. I guess it's obvious. If I added LX, then that wouldn't commute with LZ. Or if I added LY, that doesn't commute with LZ. So I can pick one component and the magnitude of the vector squared and make simultaneous eigenstates. And uh, when you did harmonic oscillators, you learned the beauty of raising and lowering operators. Made life much easier calculate, calculating wave functions. So we're going to see that uh, there's some raising and lowering operators here. And they turn out to be made out of LX and LY. So LX plus or minus I, LY. And they're going to raise and lower the eigenvalue of LZ. And why is that? If we take LZ take a commutator with uh, our raising or lowering operator. That's LZ commuting with LX plus or minus I LZ commuting with LY. We know the first guy is LZ with LX gives us LY. LZ with LY gives us minus LX. That's just plus or minus h bar times L plus or minus. And we also know that L squared commutes with L plus or minus, because it's just made out of LX and LY, which commute with L squared. So if we act with L squared on L plus minus, acting on some eigenstate. We can treat this guy as the eigenfunction. But we know they commute, so that's the same as L plus L or minus, acting on L squared phi. And phi is an eigenstate of L squared, so we can put in its eigenvalue.
So this state L plus or minus acting on phi has an eigenvalue lambda, same eigenvalue that phi had. What if we tried this trick with LZ? because they don't commute. If I want to write them in the reverse order, I have to add in the commutator. But we know the commutator just gives us back L plus or minus. And we know that phi has an eigenvalue for LZ of mu. So again, if we think of L plus minus acting on phi as the eigenfunction, it has an eigenvalue mu plus or minus h bar. And now we see why it's a raising and lowering operator. So when we act with L plus or minus, it shifts the eigenvalue by, by plus or minus h bar. That's what raising and lowering operators are supposed to do for us. So increases the angle between the z axis? Yes. Okay. Now, since L squared is the sum of the components squared, we know we should have that uh, mu squared is less than lambda squared because it's mu squared contributes to lambda squared. So lambda squared must be bigger than mu squared. That means there's a maximum value of mu. That means unlike harmonic oscillators, we can only raise so far and we can't go any further. So if you think of it as ladder, there's the top of the ladder. So there must be some state, phi t, that if I try to raise it one more time, I can't, I don't get an eigenstate, I get zero. So phi t is supposed to be an eigenstate of L squared and LZ. So we'll call it LZ eigenvalue So that's just a definition of what L is. You guys look anxious, it must be time to end. And it's also an eigenstate of L squared with eigenvalue lambda.
And I think we better just take questions now. Because now there's a big calculation to do. So does everyone understand what we're what is we're trying to get to? What is it? What is it we are trying to do? We're trying to find a complete set of commuting observables for angular momentum. We decided that L squared in one component will work, and we picked L, the Z component because we like Z. Z is our friend always. We always <coughs> pick Z to be the special axis. We could have picked L X, and it would work just the same, except we'd be rotated with respect to everyone else in the world because everyone else in the world picks Z. So we're just going to pick Z like everyone else. But it doesn't, it's just an arbitrary choice. And we're trying to construct raising and lowering operators so that we can understand the properties of angular momentum without getting into spherical harmonics. And we'll do that next time. Oh, so no one complained, as far as I know, that they didn't have their question on the quantum questions. So you can start voting. Voting will close Wednesday morning. Pick five.